This is section 14 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 14, Territorial Enterprise, February 1864. Territorial Enterprise, November 1863 to February 1864. Letter from Dayton. Extract. Traveling with Adolph Sutro. Eight left Virginia yesterday and came down to Dayton with Mr. Sutro. Time, thirty minutes. Distance, eight or nine miles. There is nothing very slow about that kind of travel. We found Dayton the same old place, but taking up a good deal more room than it did the last time I saw it, and looking more brisk and lively with its increase of business, and more handsome on account of the beautiful dressed stone buildings with which it is being embellished of late. Just as we got fairly under way, and were approaching Ball Roberts Bridge, Sutro's dog Carlo got to skirmishing around in the extravagant exuberance of his breakfast, and shipped up a fight with six or seven other dogs whom he was entirely unacquainted with, had never met before, and probably has no desire to meet again. He waltzed into them right gallantly, and right gallantly waltzed out again. We also left at about this time, and trotted briskly across Ball Roberts Bridge. I remarked that Ball Roberts Bridge was a good one, and a credit to that bald gentleman. I said it in a fine burst of humor, and more on account of the joke than anything else, but Sutro is insensible to the more delicate touches of American wit, and the effort was entirely lost on him. I don't think Sutro minds a joke of mild character any more than a dead man would. However, I repeated it once or twice without producing any visible effect, and finally derived what comfort I could by laughing at it myself. Mr. Sutro, being a confirmed businessman, replied in a practical and businesslike way. He said the bridge was a good one, and so were all public blessings of a similar nature when entrusted to the hands of private individuals. He said if the county had built the bridge, it would have cost an extravagant sum of money, and would have been eternally out of repair. He also said the only way to get public work well and properly done was to let it out by contract. For instance, says he, they have fooled away two or three years trying to capture Richmond, whereas if they had let the job by contract to some sensible businessman, the thing would have been accomplished and forgotten long ago. It was a novel and original idea, and I forgot my joke for the next half-hour in speculating upon its feasibility. Territorial Enterprise, February ninth, 1864. Letter from Carson City. Concerning Notaries. A strange, strange thing occurred here yesterday, to wit, a man applied for a notary's commission. Think of it ponder over it. He wanted a notarial commission, he said to himself. He was from Stony County. He brought his little petition along with him. He brought it on two stages. It is voluminous. The county surveyor is chaining it off. Three shifts of clerks will be employed night and day on it, deciphering the signatures and testing their genuineness. They began unrolling the petition at noon, and people of strong mining proclivities at once commenced locating claims on it. We are too late, you know. But then they say the extensions are just as good as the original. 
I believe you. Since writing the above, I have discovered that the foregoing does not amount to much as a sensation item after all. The reason is, because there are seventeen hundred and forty-two applicants for notaryships already on file in the governor's office. I was not aware of it, you know. There are also as much as eleven cords of petitions stacked up in his backyard. A watchman stands guard over this combustible material. The backyard is not insured. Since writing the above, strange events have happened. I started downtown and had not gone far when I met a seedy, ornery, ratty, hang-dog-looking stranger who approached me in the most insinuating manner and said he was glad to see me. He said he had often sighed for an opportunity of becoming acquainted with me, that he had read my effusions—he called them effusions—with solemn delight, and had yearned to meet the author face to face. He said he was Bilson, Bilson of Lander. I might have heard of him. I told him I had, many a time, which was an infamous falsehood. He said, "'Damn it, old quill-driver, you must come and take a drink with me.' And says I, "'Damn it, old vermin ranch, I'll do it.' I had him there. He took a drink, and he told the barkeeper to charge it, after which he opened a well-filled carpet-sack and took out a shirt-collar and a petition. He then threw the empty carpet-sack aside and unrolled several yards of the petition. "'Just for a starter,' he said." now says he mark have you got a good deal of influence with governor unbounded says i with honest pride when i go and use my influence with governor nye and tell him it will be a great personal favor to me if he will do so and so he always says it will be a real pleasure to him that if it were any other man any other man in the world but seeing it's me he won't Mr. Bilson then remarked that I was the very man. He wanted a little notarial appointment, and he would like me to mention it to the governor. I said I would, and turned away, resolved to damn young Bilson's official aspirations with a mild dose of my influence. I walked about ten steps, and met a cordial man, with the dust of travel upon his garments. He mashed my hands in his, and as I stood straightening the joints back into their places again, says he, "'Why, darn it, Mark, how well you're looking! Thunder, it's been an age since I saw you. Turn round, let's look at you good. Gad, it's the same old Mark. Well, how have you been? And what have you been doing with yourself lately? Why don't you never come down and see a fella? Every time I come to town, the old woman's sure to get after me for not bringing you out as soon as I get back.' why she takes them articles of yourn and slathers em into her old scrapbook along with deaths and marriages and receipts for the itch and the smallpox and hell knows what all and if it weren't that you talk too slow to ever make love dang my cats if i wouldn't be jealous of you but what's the use of fooling away time here let's go and gobble a cocktail this was old boreas from washoe i went and gobbled a cocktail with him he mentioned, incidentally, that he wanted a notaryship, and showed me a good deal of his petition. I said I would use my influence in his behalf, and requested him to call at the governor's office in the morning, and get his commission. He thanked me most heartily, and said he would. I think I see him doing of it. 
I met another stranger before I got to the corner, a pompous little man with a crooked-handled cane and sorrel mustache. Says he, "'How do you do, Mr. Twain? How do you do, sir? I am happy to see you, sir. Very happy indeed, sir. My name is blank blank. Pardon me, sir, but I perceive you do not entirely recollect me. I am J. Bildecombe Dusenberry of Esmeralda, formerly of the city of New York, sir.' "'Well,' says I, "'I'm glad to meet you, dysentery, and—no, no, Dusenberry, sir, Dusenberry. You—oh, I beg your pardon,' says I. "'Dusenberry? Yes, I understand now. But it's all the same, you know. Dusenberry, by any other name, would, however, I see you have a bale of dry goods. For me, perhaps?' He said it was only a little petition, and proceeded to show me a few acres of it observing casually that he was the candidate in the notarial line, that he had read my lucumbrations, he called it all that, with absorbing interest, and he would like me to use my influence with the governor in his behalf. I assured him his commission would be ready for him as soon as it was signed. He appeared overcome with gratitude, and insisted, and insisted, and insisted, until at last I went, and took a drink with him. On the next corner I met Chief Justice Turner, on his way to the governor's office with a petition. He said, "'God bless you, my dear fellow, I'm delighted to see you,' and hurried on, after receiving my solemn promise, that he should be a notary public if I could secure his appointment. Next I met William Stewart, grinning in his engaging way, and stroking his prodigious whiskers from his nose to his stomach. Sandy Baldwin was with him, and they both had measureless petitions on a dray, with the names all signed in their own handwriting. I knew those fellows pretty well, and I didn't promise them my influence. I knew if the governor refused to appoint them, they would have an injunction on him in less than twenty-four hours, and stop the issuance of any more notary commissions. I met John B. Winters next, and Judge North, and Mayor Arick, and Washu Jim, and John O. Earl, and Ah Fu, and John H. Atkinson, and Hong Wu, and Wells Fargo, and Charlie Strong, and Bob Morrow, and General Williams, and seventy-two other prominent citizens of Story County, with a long pack-train laden with their several petitions. I examined their documents, and promised to use my influence toward procuring notary ships for the whole tribe. I also drank with them. I wandered down the street, conversing with every man I met, examining his petition. It became a sort of monomania with me, and I kept it up for two hours with unflagging interest. Finally, I stumbled upon a pensive, travel-worn stranger, leaning against an awning-post. I went up and looked at him. He looked at me. I looked at him again, and again he looked at me. I bent my gaze upon him once more, and says I, "'Well?' He looked at me very hard, and says he, "'Well? Well what?' Says I, "'Well, I would like to examine your petition, if you please.' He looked very much astonished, I may say amazed. When he had recovered his presence of mind, he says, "'What the devil do you mean?' I explained to him that I only wanted to glance over his petition for a notaryship. He said he believed I was a lunatic. He didn't like the unhealthy light in my eye. 
and he didn't want me to come any closer to him. I asked him if he had escaped the epidemic, and he shuddered, said he didn't know of any epidemic. I pointed to the large placard on the wall, Coaches will leave the Ormsby house punctually every fifteen minutes for the governor's mansion, for the accommodation of notorial aspirants, etc., etc. Schemmerhorn, agent. And I asked him if he didn't know enough to understand what that meant. I also pointed to the long procession of petition-laden citizens filing up the street toward the governor's house, and asked him if he was not aware that all those fellows were going after notarial commissions that the balance of the people had already gone, and that he and I had the whole town to ourselves. He was astonished again. Then he placed his hand upon his heart, and swore a frightful oath that he had just arrived from over the mountains, and had no petition, and didn't want a notary ship. I gazed upon him a moment in silent rapture, and then clasped him to my breast. After which I told him it was my turn to treat by thunder, whereupon we entered a deserted saloon and drank up its contents. We lay upon a billiard-table in a torpid condition for many minutes, but at last my exile rose up and muttered in a sepulchral voice, "'I feel it! Oh, heavens! I feel it in me veins!' "'Feel what?' says I, alarmed. Says he, "'I feel! Oh, me sainted mother! I feel! Feel!' a hankering to be a notary public. And he tore down several yards of wallpaper and fell to writing a petition on it. Poor devil! He had got it at last, and got it bad. I was seized with a fatal distemper a moment afterward. I wrote a petition with frantic haste, appended a copy of the Directory of Nevada Territory to it, and we fled down the deserted streets to the governor's office. But I must draw the curtain upon these harrowing scenes. The memory of them scorches my brain. Ah, this legislature has much to answer for in cutting down the number of notaries public in this territory with their infernal new law. Territorial Enterprise, February 12, 1864. Letter from Mark Twain. Carson City, February 5, 1864. Winter's New House. Editors, Enterprise. Theodore Winter's handsome dwelling in Washoe Valley is an eloquent witness in behalf of Mr. Steele's architectural skill. The basement story is built of brick, and the spacious court which surrounds it, and whose columns support the veranda above, is paved with large old-fashioned tiles. On this floor is the kitchen, dining-room, bathroom, bedchamber for servants, and a commodious storeroom, with shelves laden with all manner of substantials and luxuries for the table. All these apartments are arranged in the most convenient manner, and are fitted and furnished handsomely and plainly, but expensively. Water-pipes are numerous in this part of the house, and the fluid they carry is very pure and cold and clear. On the next floor above are two unusually large drawing-rooms, richly furnished, and gotten up in every respect with faultless taste, which is a remark one is seldom enabled to apply to parlors and drawing-rooms on this coast. The colors in the carpets, curtains, etc., are of a warm and cheerful nature, but there is nothing gaudy about them. The ceilings are decorated with pure white moldings of graceful pattern. 
two large bedchambers adjoin the parlors and are supplied with elaborately carved black walnut four hundred dollar bedsteads similar to those used by dan and myself in virginia the remainder of the furniture of these chambers is correspondingly sumptuous and expensive on the floor above are half a dozen comfortable bedrooms for the accommodation of visitors also a spacious billiard-room which will shortly be graced by a table of superb workmanship the windows of the house are of the gothic style and set with stained glass the chandeliers are of bronze the stair railings of polished black walnut and the principal doors of some kind of dark-colored wood mahogany i suppose there are two peculiarly pleasant features about this house the ceilings are high and the halls of unusual width the building above the basement story is of wood and strongly and compactly put together it stands upon tolerably high ground and from its handsome veranda mr winters can see every portion of his vast farm from the stables to the parlors the house and its belongings is a model of comfort convenience and substantial elegance everything is of the best that could be had and there is no circus flummery visible about the establishment i went out there to a party a short time ago in the night behind a pair of cormac's fast horses with john james on account of losing the trail of the telegraph poles we wandered out among the shingle machines in the sierras and were delayed several hours we arrived in time however to take a large share in the festivities which were being indulged in by the governor and the supreme court and some twenty other guests the party was given by messrs joe winters and pete hopkins at theodore winters expense as a slight testimonial of their regard for the friends they invited to be present there was nothing to detract from the pleasure of the occasion except lovejoy who detracted most of the wines and liquors from it an excellent school i expect mr lawler keeps the best private school in the territory or the best school of any kind for that matter i attended one of his monthly examinations a week ago or such a matter with mr claggett and we arrived at the conclusion that one might acquire a good college education there within the space of six months mr lawler's is a little crib of a schoolhouse papered from door to ceiling with blackboards adorned with impossible mathematical propositions done in white chalk the effect is bewildering to the stranger but otherwise he will find the place comfortable enough when we arrived the teacher was talking in a rambling way upon a great many subjects like a member of the house speaking to a point of order and three boys were making verbatim reports of his remarks in graham's phonographic shorthand on the walls of the schoolroom these pupils had devoted half an hour to the study and practice of this accomplishment every day for the past four or five months and the result was a proficiency usually attained only after eighteen months of application it was amazing mr lawler has so simplified the art of teaching in every department of instruction that i am confident he could impart a thorough education in a short time to any individual who has as much as a spoonful of brains to work upon it is in no spirit of extravagance that i set it down here as my serious conviction that mr lawler 
could even take one of our miss nancy meriden prosecuting attorneys and post him up so in a month or two that he could tell his own witnesses from those of the defense in nine cases out of ten mind i do not give this as an absolute certainty but merely as an opinion of mine and one which is open to grave doubts too i am willing to confess now when i come to think calmly and dispassionately about it no the truth is the more i think of it the more i weaken i expect i spoke too soon went off before i was primed as it were with, with your permission I, I will take it all back i know two or three prosecuting attorneys and i am satisfied the foul density of their intellects would put out any intellectual candle that mr lawler could lower into them i do not say that a higher power could not miraculously illuminate them no i only say i would rather see it first a man always has more confidence in a thing after he has seen it you know at least that is the way with me but to proceed with that school mr claggett invited one of those phonographic boys master barry ashem to come and practice his shorthand in the house of representatives he accepted the invitation and in accordance with resolutions offered by messrs claggett and stewart he was tendered the compliment of a seat on the floor of the house during the session and the sergeant-at-arms instructed to furnish him with a desk and such stationery as he might require he has already become a reporter of no small pretensions there is a class in mr lawler's school composed of children three months old and upwards who know the spelling-book by heart if you ask them what the first word is in any given lesson they will tell you in a moment and then go on and spell every word thirty-five in the lesson without once referring to the book or making a mistake again you may mention a word and they will tell you which particular lesson it is in, and what words precede it and follow it. Then again you may propound an abstruse grammatical enigma, and the school will solve it in chorus, will tell you what language is correct, and what isn't, and why and wherefore, and quote rules and illustrations until you wish you hadn't said anything. Two or three doses of this kind will convince a man that there are youngsters in this school who know everything about grammar that can be learned, and what is just as important can explain what they know so that other people can understand it but when those fellows get to figuring let second-rate mathematicians stand from under for behold it is their strong suit they work miracles on a blackboard with a piece of chalk witchcraft and sleight of hand and all that sort of thing is foolishness to the facility with which they can figure a moral impossibility down to an infallible result they only require about a dozen figures to do a sum which by all ordinary methods would consume a hundred and fifty these fellows could cipher a week on a sheet of foolscap they can find out anything they want to with figures and they are very quick about it too you tell them for instance that you were born in such and such a place on such and such a day of the month in such and such a year and they will tell you in an instant how old your grandmother is i have never seen any banker's clerks who could begin to cipher with those boys it has been virginia's unchristian policy to grab everything that was of any account that ever came into the territory virginia could do many a worse thing than to grab this school 
and move it into the shadow of Mount Davidson, teacher and all. Concerning Undertakers There is a system of extortion going on here which is absolutely terrific, and I wonder the Carson Independent has never ventilated the subject. There seems to be only one undertaker in the town, and he owns the only graveyard in which it is at all high-toned or aristocratic to be buried. Consequently, when a man loses his wife or his child or his mother, this undertaker makes him sweat for it. I appeal to those whose firesides death has made desolate during the few fatal weeks just past, if I am not speaking the truth. Does not this undertaker take advantage of that unfortunate delicacy which prevents a man from disputing an unjust bill for services rendered in burying the dead, to extort tenfold more than his labors are worth? I have conversed with a good many citizens on this subject, and they all say the same thing, that they know it is wrong that a man should be unmercifully fleeced under such circumstances, but, according to the solemn etiquette above referred to, he cannot help himself. All that sounds very absurd to me. I have a human distaste for death, as applied to myself, but I see nothing very solemn about it as applied to anybody. It is more to be dreaded than a birth or a marriage, perhaps, but it is really not as solemn a matter as either of these, when you come to take a rational, practical view of the case. Therefore I would prefer to know that an undertaker's bill was a just one before I paid it, and I would rather see it go clear to the Supreme Court of the United States, if I could afford the luxury, than pay it if it were distinguished for its unjustness. A great many people in the world do not think as I do about these things, but I care nothing for that. The knowledge that I am right is sufficient for me. This undertaker charges a hundred and fifty dollars for a pine coffin that cost him twenty or thirty, and fifty dollars for a grave that did not cost him ten, and this at a time when his ghastly services are required at least seven times a week. I gather these facts from some of the best citizens of Carson, and I can publish their names at any moment if you want them. What Carson needs is a few more undertakers. There is vacant land enough here for a thousand cemeteries. Mark Twain End of section 14